Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be part of the Sparkfile coaching community? Here's how the Sparkfile community describes it. The most honest, safe, life-affirming, and life-changing experience I've had in all my 55 years. The best. I'm incredibly grateful to Laura and Susan for teaching me the tools and structures that I need to get past the fear and to just do it anyway. The Spark File is a portal to your creative powers and believing in yourself. This group is spiritually, emotionally, mentally supportive, creative, amazing, encouraging, life-shifting, and liberating uber talented warm thoughtful lovely wonderful people i need a group like this to give me the kick in the ass that i need to start making the things that i want to make and do there's a big beautiful creative trampoline that just like catches you gently and just launches you out with so much love if you want to learn more about the spark file creativity coaching including our six-month blaze course visit the sparkfile.com slash blaze and schedule a no pressure no obligation call to find out what is possible and how we can support you it's time to take it and make it Hi friends, I'm Laura Camion and I'm Susan Blackwell and we're the hosts of the Sparkfile Creativity Podcast. We are excited to report that we're accepting applications for the Sparkfile Select Group Creativity Coaching Program, a guided six-month creative adventure. This program is like a live interactive episode of the Sparkfile Podcast, facilitated by the two of us and of course the occasional inspiring expert or guest maker will investigate topics that directly impact your creativity and productivity. A select group of participants will design and navigate their own creative roadmaps and support each other to get the work done. Now you might have a specific project you want to tackle or you might just want a healthy productive group to engage with in a regular creative practice. At each week's virtual meetup through activities, accountability, and interaction with a community of peers, we'll lay the groundwork for your creativity to thrive. Show up and do the work, and in six months' time, your creative practice will be on point and your creative project will be well on its way. As you know, we believe every single person is innately creative, but smart creative people don't go it alone. If you want to be surrounded by a group of like-minded creatives who are invested in your success, the Sparkfile Select Group Creativity Coaching Program might be just right for you. If this creative mixtape sounds appealing to you, go to thesparkfile.com, click on coaching and apply, but do it soon because spots are limited. The Sparkfile podcast may contain profanity and other adult content. Please use your discretion. When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my sparkfile. To be something that I wanna make or how I wanna be, I pump it in my sparkfile. I jump into my sparkfile. Let's open up the Welcome to the Spark File, your public drinking fountain for creative inspiration. I'm Laura Camion. And I'm Susan Blackwell. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. But you may be asking yourself, what exactly is a Spark File? Where do I get one? What do I file in it? These are good questions, and we have got answers. 
a spark file is the place where you consistently collect all your inspirations and fascinations. And if you're like us and you're making stuff all the time, sometimes the wellspring of inspiration can run a little dry. We're here to refill it. We are on the lookout for fresh ideas, images, and inspiration that spark our creativity and pique our curiosity, things that inspire us to get up off of our asses and make things like this podcast. Or an Emmy award-winning, hilarious, and heartwarming character that helps us all examine our humanity. Or a signature Auguste clown defined by mismatched plaids with a trademark bold splash of pink and a blue lip. Or the voice of a beloved pup who gives us a glimpse into the mischievous secret adventures of our pets. Or a legacy of giving back to a community you hold dear through comedy, through philanthropy, and through a royal sports team fandom. What, 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 what? What? On today's Makersode, we're going to talk with a dear friend who truly sparks us. And that someone is Eric Stone Street. Eric, welcome to The The Spark. Spark. Bye, Eric. Hello. We're so happy Hi. to have you here. You came Thank in from you. fishing to do this podcast. That is what I call a commitment to friendship. Yes. Thank you. Laura calls, I answer. We're so, we're so excited that you're here. Um, so we'll just start by asking, where are you right now? How are you right now? And what are you wearing? <laughs> I'm in Kansas City, uh, my, my, my hometown. I decided to to venture back here and leave Los Angeles because it didn't seem like there was much going on there. So I'm back here and uh, I'm doing I'm doing well. I'm doing good. I'm very fortunate yeah. to have a nice place to be and be able not be too stressed out about anything and just uh, think about all the people that you know are stressed out about stuff. It, worries me and then yeah. i'm wearing a t-shirt in uh my pants and my socks and my shoes say but... hip waiters please say hip waiters <laughs> no 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 damn my, it my pants are tucked in my socks because it's, yes it's tick season uh, yes in kansas city so i have to protect against getting ticks eric you started your quarantine in Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. now you're in Kansas. I started my quarantine in New York City, and now I'm in mm-hmm. Florida. I'm curious about just what's that experience for you? Do you f- do you feel like there's a great difference in perspective in those two locations, or or about mm-hmm. the same? That wearing a mask in Kansas City, I got to tell you, is great. I love it. Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not having any uh, uh, conversations with anybody. I'm just going in and just getting my stuff and walking out, and it's it's great. The six that, feet apart thing has to help that too. Like everyone, well, yeah. you know, you know, and and in Kansas City, I'm very fortunate to have people, you know, like me and 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 um, you know want to celebrate me and i i yeah. do a lot of hugging and a lot of handshaking and <laughs> oh um, yeah n- none of that's happening right now so uh it feels that mask it, really comes in handy yeah it feels it feels it feels good it feels like i'm just a my old eric that's so interesting that reminds me when friends like friend movie stars and tv stars go to comic con in full cosplay so that they can move through they could just walk their spider-man just walking <laughs> through there and they get to have just a little difference from their normal life 
which I well, think is great. One of the things I love about Halloween is it, it mm. allows me to, um, I've always loved Halloween. I've always loved putting on a, a, a very realistic, scary, some kind of old person mask and, you know, scaring people. And <laughs> Halloween, you know, allows me in Los Angeles to go amongst people and that's right. Do what, do what I love Scare to do. Scare the shit out of them. Yeah, just <laughs> creep people out. Your that real joy in life is scaring the shit out of people. That well, tells but, me so much about you. But not in a not in a boo sort of like way, in a very methodical, just staring, creepy from a distance kind of way. I'm not like a startling. <laughs> the best kind of, of way. Yeah, oh my God. I, I want to stand on a street corner and stare at someone and tell they see that I'm staring at them. And then when they walk away, follow them for a quarter of a mile. That's oh sort of God, a menacing, Eric. like yeah, a menacing threat. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, how tall are you? I'm six one. That would be scary as fuck. That is oh, fucked. Yeah. It's very yeah. effective. I love it. Before we get too far down the lane, the Sparkfile price of admission, real quick, Eric, can you tell us a creative risk that you have taken recently? Hmm. Well, in my Nothing really much in my career right in the last few months because sure. Modern Family ended in February, mm -hmm. um, and then things kind of kind of slowed down. Um, you know, my creativity, I guess you would say. Um, I mean, if the the truth is, is what my mind is creatively and actively thinking about is um, building a a fun retreat for myself, some place to go and, and hang yes, out. Yes, yes, So this um, is it. This is great. I, I've been thinking about um, outdoor bathrooms is literally what I was thinking about on my way home <laughs> uh, from fishing to be from with you. From fishing? <laughs> when you say yeah. outdoor bathrooms, do you mean like an outdoor shower or like an outdoor toilet, which would be innovative to say yeah. the least? Well, just like a, a really great place for friends, family to be able to use the bathroom in the middle of nowhere, but feel as though they're in a, the Parker Meridian, Parker Meridian in New York City or wherever. <laughs> I want them to feel as though they're in the opulence of of a bathroom in in a great New York City hotel, but literally in the middle of the woods of Kansas. So that's what I've been thinking about recently because they're they're. I mean, I I can't imagine that. Your listeners are like, this is what I tune in for. But um, I don't know. I have the biggest <laughs> smile on my face right I know, now. Me I, too. I'm like, this is this is um this is some good creativity. Yeah, well, because there are lateral lines and a septic tank already on this piece of property. So I have to take what's already there and that exists mm -hmm. and turn it into what my design is. Um so that's been filling my brain. Uh, I love and, that. With a lot. That was the most unexpected, I'd have to say, <laughs> and I could never have predicted that. But it is exactly the example we're talking about. Like suddenly you're like, I'm a bathroom designer, an outdoor bathroom designer, and uh, because I have a vision. And but working and with a pre-existing, pre-existing mm -hmm. septic system. <laughs> And doing some creative problem solving. I am so sorry. You can hang up on me now if you'd like. Oh okay. hell no! So it's a little bit more than that. It's a little bit more than that. It's it and and it's like I want to build. You know, I want to kind of build my own like campground. I just want to build my yeah. own place yes. where I can go and be in. So there's more than just a bathroom. There's a yeah. place to 
yeah fireplace but about so that's from, what listen though if it was just like a fucking freestanding parker meridian bathroom in the middle <laughs> of the woods that would be baller i see a partnership fuck. i see a partnership yeah. i think I'm, they're gonna want to this is one of that. the most exciting prices of admission we've ever heard on this podcast i love it so much you officially are admitted into the spark file yeah the good news is is you know one or both of you for sure laura will definitely at some point probably use that bathroom Yes, oh, so I was hoping so. that toilet. Yes. There will be so... a first, a full circle moment. Oh my God. What you're describing immediately when you start talking about it, Eric, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, I've made up a whole story around this little price of admission you've shared, but it sounds like you have procured a beautiful piece of land and you're figuring out how to create this retreat for you and the people that you love. And it sounds like it's going to be amazing. Yeah, that's that's essentially what it is. You know, when mm. Modern Family was, you know, in its seventh or eighth season and I, you know, realized that, well, this isn't going to last forever and I don't know how long I, you know, want to be in the business. I was never sort of thinking that I would always be an actor. Um, I started thinking about, you know, where, what I would do afterwards and yeah. started looking at, properties in California. And then I started looking at properties where near where Laura and I went to college in Manhattan mm -hmm. in the Flint Hills, which is so beautiful. And yeah. then when Lindsay and I started dating, then it kind of been together almost four years now, it kind of changed the perspective of like where it would make sense to have a little retreat. And I thought, well, why bring a third location into the mm -hmm. equation and not just, and why not find a place that's somewhat close to where I grew up, where my parents are, where her parents are, and she is. And That sounds beautiful. It makes perfect sense. And you just mentioned something that I wanted to fill our listeners in, just a little bit of backstory. Um, Eric and I go way back to the good old days of Kansas State University. The Wildcats, yes. The Wildcats. And we just talked about, I just talked about K-State um, a few episodes ago, Eric, um, which was really fun to dedicate an episode to that. Um, but a question for you. Even, yes. even though now, like most people probably recognize you from, Cam, you know, the role of Cameron Tucker on Modern Family, but I've always known you as an incredibly creative person, like Yes, you're an actor and you play the drums and you're fluent in clowning and improv and stand-up comedy, but you are also a cook, a really creative gift giver. Your home design is incredible. It's really mm. eclectic and thought. Susan, you'd love it because mm. all it's beautiful, but everything has stories and significance as you, you know, as you move through the house. You're great at pranks. Your Instagram is full of like funny videos. <laughs> You're torturing terrifying people. on Halloween. And torturing Lindsay, which is like a special <laughs> kind of comedy, which is really amazing. But all of this is to say that like creativity seems to just run through your veins. So my question for you is this. When did you become conscious of your own creativity? Was there something in your upbringing that cultivated it within you? Or is it something that's just always been yeah, I, you know, I think we all are on some set, some sort of quest to figure yeah. out like, like when we, someone knew we were maybe a little different or something. Mm -hmm. And I've always asked my parents, like, when did you think, when did you first think, 
like I was funny and not just oh. like because I'm your son funny, but when you feel yeah. like, oh, you know, Eric, Eric has a different perspective and an outlook on life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple things I, I know for a fact, like I've heard my parents each tell me that my grandma, Louise, who made all Fisbo costumes when I was a kid, <laughs> that they would, she would always tell them that, you know, one of the reasons at a young age that she, I was, you know, able and she was so excited to have me down there other than seeing me was because she could put me, if she was baking or if she was doing something, she could put me on the front porch, a screened in porch with a box of blocks and she never heard a peep out of me for yeah. hours. So that always, that's always intrigued me that I was able to entertain myself at a really, really young age without needing a a ton of stimulation. Now that might be a product of when I was a young kid, but, and then the other thing is I, I really have these distinct memories of going, because one of the things I love to do with my grandma and grandpa and um, mom and dad was to go, go to the mall. I loved going to Montgomery Ward's. (laughs) <laughs> and I never wanted to look at toys. I always wanted to look at tools. And I would just go through hmm. the, the catalog of Montgomery Wards and Sears and just look at screwdrivers and saws and really? hammers, obsessed with tools. And so when we would go to the mall and I would go in, my grandpa would just let me look at all the tools on the, on the wall. And I just imagined, really? oh yeah, owning all those tools. And but more than that, I remember being, once we would leave the Montgomery Wards and go into the mall, I didn't want to go into any other stores. And I have specific memories of sitting on the bench outside when you could leave a kid sit on the bench outside of these <laughs> stores. And I would have full on conversations with adults. Like, you know, I have those memories of just of complete strangers, me sitting on a bench waiting for my grandma or my grandpa or my mom or my dad to come out of whatever store they were in that I wasn't interested in and having adults or having conversations with adults. And my, my dad is the same way as far as like, you know, my dad's never met a stranger and he would yeah. always say that as a kid about me as a kid is Eric yeah. you know, never, you know, met a stranger. So and then just like so many other people that find their way into the world that, you know, found our way into, I, I would get on my report card every year that, you know, Eric is a, a very nice young man, but he needs to understand that there's a time and a place for everything. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and That's that, your first rein it in advice. <laughs> yeah. So you know, glad you didn't. That he's distracting. I mean, and I, I'm still that same person. I mean, Lindsay has two eight-year-old boys. And the other night I, I found myself, you know, basically being the third eight-year-old at the table. And Lindsay's like oh looking at me like, are you serious right now? I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I am doing the exact same thing you are. Um, <laughs> Whoops. So my my sort of like active and creative brain, I would say, started that way. And then Laura, you you hit on it. I mean, I wanted to be a clown like at mm. an oddly young age. Like I was mm. putting on clown makeup and wigs and clown suits <laughs> when I was eight years old. And I don't mean yeah. for Halloween. I mean dressing up in makeup and learning yes. from a shrine clown how to put on clown makeup and yeah um 
identifying when I went to the circus that that's, that's what I wanted to do. Were you able to articulate then or, or now, like, what was it that really spoke to you about being a clown? Well, I mean, I think when you, you know, you go to the Ringling Brothers Circus, I'm certainly not going to, you know, be on the trapeze. I never, you know, never saw myself flying through the air, getting shot out of a cannon. I didn't have that, that gene in me, but I, you know, I, I, I just had the gene of being in the center ring with Mm -hmm. the spotlight on me, you know, getting Mm -hmm. the pie in my face. And it's a, it's an episode, the first episode of Modern Family that Fizbo's, you know, introduced, it's a, the line of, I knew I wanted to be a clown from the, from the moment I found out clowns were just people with makeup. That is, that is an absolute direct quote from my life. I told them (laughs) that I told my mom, the moment I figured out that, wait, so those people just have fake noses and fake hair and makeup and they can, anyone can do that. I was done. I mean, that's all I, I wanted to do and just making people laugh. Um, do you know why, Eric? Like, what specifically was it about it that you were so compelled? Well, I, you know, I just told Lindsay the other night, I don't know what the obsession is with me looking. I'm, I love looking at clown pictures. I love looking at videos of clowns. Uh, I love I, that. I always have. I've always loved little statu- statues and little clown things. And so... I mean, I, I guess a psychologist would tell me there's something about hiding behind there and the mask and not wanting, you know, to, you know, I loved, for, you know, Kiss was obviously my favorite band when I was a kid because yeah. here, here they come with makeup on and the mystique yeah. of not knowing what they look like. But I love, I mean, the smell of makeup, the smell yeah. of the adhesive <laughs> of putting on my nose, the, uh-huh. the it's all just so, um, there's something about it that is so magnetic to you. Yeah. And then again, you get into that Halloween. I was in 4-H when I was a kid, you know, and Me too. Clowning, clowning was a project that I all of us 4-H. were in 4-H. Oh, cool. that is all 4-Hers. Yeah. Yep. And awesome. so clowning, but you, wait, you did clowning in 4-H? They created a clowning project because of, of, I wanted to be a clown. So there they would get people to come in and teach us how to do makeup and and all that kind of stuff. Amazing. I don't think I ever told you this. And Eric, I know I've never told you this. I, there was an ad in the paper when I was little, a local department store. Don't ask me why, but a local department store was offering clowning classes. And I, my, my mom must've been like, you like, things like this, maybe you'd be interested. And there was a number for you to call and I called it and called it and called it on our rotary phone. And it just rang and rang and rang. And finally, somebody finally picked up the phone and I registered myself for clown classes. And Eric, I fucking feel you. Like I... (laughs) The makeup, the, I was obsessed with the creating my clown persona and my clown costume and getting my mom to help me. She helped me sort of fashion something from a thrift store. And I was sort of like, uh, sort of an august clown, but like a fancy lady. It's hard. (laughs) It's hard to explain, but I feel you. I fucking feel you. And I don't know why I, you, I feel like you had an entrepreneurial spirit 
with your clowning, even as a young person, that you kind of were putting yourself out there and even making a business of it as a kid. Oh, yeah. I didn't I have had, that kind of confidence, but that, that I feel you. I feel you. I, I had business cards when I was 11. I still have some of my Shut the for Fizbo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I still have some of the cards um, left over. Frameable. That's amazing. Eric, um, will you jog what? my memory on something? Um, mm-hmm. So I remember, so after we left college and I went to New York, when I started working for Blue Man, which is, you know, honestly, they don't use the word clown, but they're a bunch of clowns. And um, So pretentious they don't use the word clown. <laughs> it's exactly I know. what they are, are clowns. I mean, they're, they're clowns. They're clowning. They're don't clowning. they internally, though, like when they talk about no. it internally? No. Really? Yeah, for real. Wow. But but Wes, like when when I joke with Wes about his autobiography, we've named it A Man Among Clowns. So that'll be his story when it comes time to write it. But so he he knows he's a clown. But what I love, like from the start, I started with Blue Man before anyone knew what the heck it was. And Eric, I can remember telling you about it. I remember when you saw it and you were like, this is the most amazing thing. And you were such a champion of it, which made me feel really proud when the rest of the world was like, that sounds weird. Mm -hmm. Um, You were like in full support, which was. Yeah, I loved it because it's clowning. Yeah, it's clowning. What am I I jogging your memory on though? Oh, yeah. I haven't gotten to the question. So around that time, though, didn't you, did you either apply to Ringling Brothers School or did you, were you making a decision of whether or not to go there? There was something that you came very close to continuing your studies as a clown, right? Yeah. So I can't remember how many years you left K-State before I did, if it's one or two. but I think it, one, yeah. Okay. So I applied for Ringling Brothers twice. And um, once when I was in college and, oh no, both times when I was in college. And then, but so you would have been there in college for one of the times I applied. And the first year... It's a, it's a running acceptance. It was a running acceptance. So if they liked you, they'd put you on a wall and then they'd keep you on the wall until somebody came along that they thought was better. So I wasn't hearing anything. I wasn't hearing anything. And I had one more year of school to go. So finally, I had to call Clown College and say like, hey, uh, what's going on? And there's like, you know, there's, you're, still, you're still up on the wall. We don't know yet. And you know, Clown College, back then, you would get an envelope with your acceptance letter full of confetti, and that's how you would be told that you were. <laughs> of course, you were, of you course you would. In. And then, so I got told over the phone because it made so, it, it came down to the wire so much that I, I wasn't accepted. So then I reapplied uh. the next year and didn't get as far in the process, and that's that's where I, I hung it up. But I flew to Chicago uh twice to audition um or no flew to chicago once to audition and then drove to kansas city the second year to audition man i would love to talk about your um like you said with modern family once you know you were developing that character you brought so much of your own personal history to it and i was always amazed when you would tell me those stories of just talking to the writers and like how Fizbo found his way into that storyline is incredible. Well, it was sort of one of the things that, you know, when I was going through the audition process for Modern Family, you can't like walk into the room and be like, um, 
Also, you guys, if you hire me, I used to raise pigs. I was in 4-H. I was in the <laughs> store and played football. I was a clown. Right, um, I played right. the drums. Um, I'm not a bad singer. I can do this. I can. So you can't like rattle off all the things that from your life that they might be able to mine. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I knew if I got the job that they were going to get, you know, a good actor and someone funny. But I also knew that they were going to get a lot more information from me. So. Mm. It was just a matter of time. I mean, when FISBO, when they first became aware of FISBO, we actually shot a bunch of um, interviews um, for the pilot that, you know, just didn't, made no reason to have them in there. But they, they exist somewhere of, of Cam saying he's a clown in the pilot. And then um, I just brought in an article that was written about me when I was in the fifth grade and my desire to clown and be able to join the circus and all this other stuff. And I brought that into two of our writers, Brad and Paul, and they were like, awesome. And then Mm. a few weeks later, there was an episode called Fizbo. When you think of yourself, Eric, do you think of, because you are a person who you've had wild success as an interpretive artist, but I also, you have the soul and the spirit of a creative artist and an entrepreneur, frankly, I just wonder when you think about yourself, do you think about yourself as an interpretive artist because you've, you've been so successful as, as an interpretive artist, or do you just think of yourself as a creative person? How does it feel on the inside? Hmm. That's the first time I've ever been asked that question. Um, <laughs> you know, that's good. Um, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with why I like clowns and why I like wearing a mask in Kansas City because, you know, my life leading up to getting and being fortunate enough to get a crazy successful, a job on a crazy successful show was being an open and upward and outward looking person, right? Yeah. I didn't go I love to, that. I didn't go to acting school. You know, I went to Kansas State where we learned how to act and we did plays. What did you, what did you, what was your major? uh, Sociology. Oh, Cams, what was your major? Um, Speech, communication, and theater. I assumed you both were just like BFA acting majors. No, I was a sociology major. I only did a play. Well, that's we'll go down a long path there, but I only did a play because I basically was depressed because my high school girlfriend broke up with me and my best friend Paul, who's still my best friend Paul, dared me to audition for a play and I said I would if he would. So we both went up to the theater department. Get it, Paul. Yes. We auditioned for plays and he got cast in Hamlet with Laura and I got cast in a play called Prelude to a Kiss. And then we did All My Sons together. Which, by the way, yesterday in Kansas City, there's a moving company called All My Sons. And I saw that. No when I thought of you oh. yesterday. In Portentious. Yeah. Oh, I, I feel like I derailed picture. you. I'm sorry. I feel like no, I derailed okay. you. So you were saying yeah. about your um, the way you think about yourself as a yeah a forward, upward thinking, yeah. looking person. Yeah. Well, you know, my experience and my acting training, if you will, mostly is watching and looking and being a participant. You know in life and like being able to be a weird starer without anyone really noticing I'm a weird starer. <laughs> but, but once you become recognizable or the famous word or whatever, then you're just the guy on modern family who won't stop staring at me. So mm. I found that my, my 
former self kind of went away a little bit as far as just feeling confident and comfortable to be out in public and just really being outward and upward and looking out and not looking as though I'm Jean-Claude Van Damme doing high kicks in the middle of a hotel room. Like I'm not looking for more attention, but if you do do that, you're kind of run the risk of looking like you're wanting to be noticed or something, but that's what my life, you know, was before. So I consider myself sort of an interpretive performer, but what you said before that, which was entrepreneur and my dad owning his own business and being a retailer Mm -hmm. and all that, um, I always looked at, show business as a business. And I remember very early on really having a firm grasp on that aspect of the vocation and Mm. knowing that the show is the given portion of that. The business is the thing that most people kind of neglect and don't think about that much. And I just sort of always thought, well, I have comedic chops. I have talent. I think, I think I'm pretty good based Mm -hmm. on, you know, looking at other people in my classes and knowing how long they've been doing things, always self-evaluating myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, people say don't compare yourself to others, but there is a proper time to compare yourself to others. It doesn't mean that you have to compare yourself to others and then not do something, but you do need to look in the mirror and sometimes, other people, you know, are, are helpful mm-hmm. in helping you look in the mirror. Um, yeah. But I always thought like that uh, was a given, the given, well, we'll just take it from an acting perspective. The given circumstance of the situation is that I was thought I was talented and funny. And the thing that I needed to work on and focus on more was the business end of show business. So I really, you know, learned it. agents, managers, casting directors, studied books, studied everything I could to learn uh, all the business side of making it because I thought I got the, I got the chops to do it. It feels like, and I don't mean to um, uh, assess you or assess you incorrectly, but it feels like you've had this wild success as an interpretive artist and running straight through the center of you is a pure creative originator is what it feels like. Laura? Eric, I was going to say, Eric, if you don't say yes to that, I'll chime in and say, <laughs> I think that is true. And well, well before the, the great success of Modern Family, um, I have just known that to be true of you. And it is, like you said, this, this upward facing, but I also attribute it to this curiosity that you have about life and just like your dad can i jump on that for a second i'm stuck i'm stuck back on this kid sitting on the bench at the mall who's engaging with passers-by and i just wonder first of all i love the image of that and i also wonder if you can work your mind back eric do you remember being like i I can engage people. Like I have a superpower. 
Did you experience it like that? Or were you just like, I'm good talking to adults. Do you remember how it felt when you were actually that kid on the bench? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of a memory of something around around that. Um, you know, here's something about that we I just talked about with my aunts the other day. One of my aunts owned a restaurant called the Taco Kid, and she was just telling <laughs> Lindsay about how my grandma made me a smock, the same the same look of all the people that worked at Taco Kid. It was a red zip up <laughs> smock with little pockets. <laughs> And so she made one for me and I would come in and clean tables at six, mm. seven you years You were the old. taco kid. I was the taco kid. Yeah. So, um, I guess there are definite hints when you see pictures of what I would be doing, baking with my grandma at seven, uh, you know, and being not just there, but actively participating and wanting to learn. I mean, I the first thing I ever cooked for my grandma and aunt spend spending the night in there was, uh, you know, my, 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 my world famous nachos in the toaster oven. And we're talking a very, very young, <laughs> young age of Those me having nachos. a desire to, um, make food. My mom has a very distinct memory of me being home from school, sick at 10, 11 years old. Um, and call, calling her when she called to check on me, um, me saying I had been watching the galloping gourmet and he made a steak sandwich and I wanted her to stop and get all the stuff to, so I could make the steak sandwich for, <laughs> for everybody. Yes. So, you know, it's all, it's all kind of there as a curiosity and just like kind of wanting to learn. But, but the problem, the problem is, and the, and the thing that we I really hit a roadblock is that didn't cross over into education. I never had the curiosity when it was like, sit down and learn this algebra problem or sit down and learn this science problem. I never clicked into being good in school and being disciplined, a disciplined studier. I was the kid that just did enough to get C's and D's versus the overachiever and really hard worker. To but get here's D's. what I want to say: like that, that may have been challenging and problematic then. But I feel like you, and this goes to being, I think, an originator and a creator and an entrepreneur. You created your own path, and just because you couldn't measure up to a grading scale or a learning system that worked for other young people. I feel like you had, you were always learning, whether you were on that bench at the mall, whether you were looking at the tools at Montgomery Ward, whether you were watching the Galloping Gourmet or sitting with those blocks, it just seemed like that curiosity, curiosity, curiosity was where your education was happening. And then later that observation, observation, observation uh, of the world so that you could do something with it and make something with it. I think that's just as valid. Yeah, well, I I appreciate that. And then, you know, having parents that never squelched that, you know, and never thought that's it was key. Weird. That's that I, key. so critical. Yeah. My my least favorite word, you know, you ask people their least favorite words in the world, and girls will always say moist or something like that. My least <laughs> favorite word in the world is weird. I do not like the word weird. I think it's a lazy word. I think people use it so easily in life and they just, when they see something different, they just pop weird on it and it drives me crazy. And I think it's probably because kids called me weird because 
Mm. In sixth grade, I wanted to put on clown makeup and I wanted to right. do this and I wanted to play football. But I hate that word. But my point is, is my parents never thought I was weird. And look, you know, I grew up in Kansas. I wanted to play football. I bailed hay. I raised pigs. My dad's this meat and potatoes guy. So you can't tell me at some point he didn't have a conflicting feeling in his mind when his son wanted to play football and put on wigs and his wife's makeup. So he it's had to remarkable. have been thinking what's going on, but that didn't yeah. stop him from encouraging me to do whatever I wanted, you know? So I'm super uh, thankful that yeah. happened. The concept that. of not being weird is such a strong force in the Midwest. Like we've talked about it on the podcast before, yeah. but I remember growing up having like the fear of like, Oh God, what if I'm weird? People will think I'm weird. And I'm like, where, where did that come from? But it was like the only sort of, um, behavioral controlling device, you know, that, that people had of like, my God, you don't want to be weird. So like, try to, try to fit in and be normal. Here's my thing with it. If somebody's listening and they enjoy thinking of themselves as weird, I have no problem with that. Yeah. Yeah, But I don't like it when it's used as a pejorative because it just means the person using it isn't creative enough to think of something else other than the word weird to label someone as. That's that's the same thing as calling like looking at me and saying you're fat. It's like, oh, okay. Also, is my skin white? Like, is my hair brown? Like, you don't have anything else to add to this this conversation in this moment. So, the word we, <laughs> if, 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 I'm not a big fan of the word triggered, but I'm clearly triggered right now. Thinking <laughs> of, <laughs> I was. I love that so you make true. that distinction though, because I I am feel proudly weird on the inside. Um, but I, but I think you're right. If you have taken back the night and reclaimed that word for yourself, yes. uh, yeah. then it's, it's, it's a okay. Yeah. It's, 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 again, I can't emphasize enough. It's, it's more about the person who, who searches their Rolodex of words yeah. and the only thing they can come up with to say about someone that's different than them or something new is that you're weird. Like fuck off also. Fuck right off. Yeah. I, I I'm still, I, I'm not done with this kid on this bench. I, no. I love this kid sitting on the bench outside of Spencer's gifts or whatever. And no, I would go I, into Spencer's. I love Spencer's. Spencer's was the greatest <laughs> because they had the there. greatest, yeah. the greatest black light posters in the world. Yes. And it was as close to boobs as I could get. <laughs> uh, Suze, I want to say something though about what you, when you were asking that question of, um, of Eric, like when he knew he could engage people and I want to flip that because like my experience of you, Eric, for years and years and years is, has never been that like, when you're talking with people that you have an awareness of you're engaging them, it's the opposite. Like Hmm. Eric's curiosity and like, it always feels very genuine that you are interested in the person you're talking to. You want to hear their stories. You, you want to learn what they're saying. And, and I've seen that so many times, like, just like your dad, you never meet a stranger, but it feels so genuinely and authentically led by curiosity in other people. And to me, that's different, you know, that's a distinction. But I'm, as I'm sitting here thinking about this little Eric sitting on that bench, engaging, 
being curious, I have this question. This is a weird, wild spark, but have you ever thought about having a talk show? Yeah, I, I, I've, 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 I've thought about it and things have kind of circled or circled around that. Here, here's, here's the problem with it is I would have to pretend to be interested in people that I'm not interested in. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Like if so when I you're could, not, you're not. Yeah. If I could cultivate a conversation, because listen, when you go on those talk shows with Ellen and Letterman and, and all those talk shows, which I was fortunate enough to be able to do, I get why that's a grind because while I think of myself as an engaging person and going on with original unique stories, not everyone's like that. So you're talking about yeah. pulling information out of said celebrity who doesn't want to be there and is only there because it's in his contract or her contract to be there to promote the movie or the TV show or whatever. And then it's literally work. I mean, if I can just brag about myself for just a second, it's why <laughs> the producers of Ellen you know, like when they did a show at Universal Studios down in Florida and I we saw you that I more it's like yeah. why I jumped to the front of the list because of of coming down there is because I I can go on and, and tell a story and not make the talk show host work and work and work and work. Yes, and yes, 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 yes. But, but that's your my, that's my, your mind I for would, business too. Like you know your job. Way, but I would way rather I would way rather have a talk show with perfect strangers that I could do. That's interesting. <laughs> that's a good spark. That I think that's done. a good spark. But you know, Eric, what you just described though, is exactly um, when you talk about like your mind for business, you know, you have the talent and you know, you can do the job of being an actor, but then there's this whole other world to learn. It feels to me like you've always had those machines running at the same time. And you're aware like, your job when you go on a show like that is to make it easy for the host. It's so funny because I, when I look back at those first few years of, of the show or the, literally the first year of the show, I, I ask myself all the time, like why I thought I was qualified to go on David Letterman or Jay Leno. <laughs> like it just all of a sudden happened and all of a sudden it's like, Hey, you're, you know, they, they're booking you for whatever night. And it's like, okay, well I haven't, I, I didn't go to school. I didn't go to school for this. I don't know how to go and be a talk show ho guest. I mean, I, talk show guest. I've watched them, but it, it, when I look at those early interviews and I look at those things, and I'm reminded of being on Letterman for the first time and what that felt like sitting backstage and mm. all that kind of thing, it blows my mind. And it goes it goes back to your little kid on the bench scenario, Susan, because there's this innate sort of confidence that <laughs> is in me that I don't mm. know where that came from because, you know, I, improv teacher always, Del Close always would say, he wore a t-shirt that would say, follow the fear. And, yeah. you know, there, that has been in me just God given. I mean, just there. Now it doesn't mean I'm not scared of things, but my, my willingness to just go for it um, mm -hmm. has always been there. That is a superpower. Eric, now that you, I know you've spent 11, 12 or so years talking about Modern Family. Um, I want to say one thing. The series of videos you created all set to the, the You're Gonna Miss This song. 
Oh my God. I was thinking about like, that's, that was a gift for all of us. Cause it was all like through the last season behind the scenes and all of that. But I got to imagine that was really a gift for you. Like what a way to remember it all. You're going to have all of that cataloged for all time, which is incredible. Well, it's even, it's, it's even simpler than that. And all the crew and I listen, here's the truth of it. Everyone got annoyed with it. (laughs) I believe it. You can see in their faces, which makes it even funnier. My castmates, the crew, the everything. But it was at the end of the day or at the end of the series where I would tell each person individually what my intention of doing that was, was so that when you hear this song for the rest Mm. of your life, we're going to have this moment together forever. And that changed their perspective because, you know, little Aubrey, she would be like, I hate country music. I hate country music. And I just fought through it and just kept playing it and kept doing (laughs) it and kept singing it. And it's in our gag reel. I sung it all year long during outtakes and during things like that. And my plan was specific from the beginning that I'm going to make this song my personal little anthem for the season because I love the song. And then when everyone moves forward, there's no chance in hell that they're not going to have a moment when they hear that song and think of me and think of our last season of the show. That is such a good idea. It was so creative. It well, was think so of how many fun. songs we have in our mind. Uh, you know, the outfield for me. Josie's on a vacation far Fucking away. yes. Yes. Right? Yep. So yep. when you hear when Sang I it. hear that song, I know exactly where I am, and it yeah. makes me feel good, and that's what I wanted to create. It's it's just song. a ki- music is akin to set a sense of smell, and that it's so transporting, and it's such a good trick that you played on them to be like you sons of bitches, you are going to have wistful fondness when you hear this song. I fucking love that. That's Can a I- really good idea. Can I tell you a quick story, Eric, of you did this for me one time, one of my favorite memories with you. This Mm. was way before Modern Family. I was visiting LA. I think I was doing like the Tonight Show or something for Blue Man. You picked me up at my hotel and we were just going to drive around. And you said, like, here's what I've been doing lately. I've just been driving around LA and I've been listening to this song. Are you ready? And I, I was like, yeah. And I braced myself and I fully expected some crazy song like by Rob Bass or something to come blasting out, you know? So I was like, oh God, what's it going to be? That pussy, yo, pop. That's what I thought it would be. But no, instead, it was Enya, Only Time. It was that song, song, like, who can say where the road goes, where the day flows, Only Time. We put that song on repeat and blasted it driving down Sunset Boulevard. Mm. I remember you pointing out the laugh factory and naming the mm. comics who had performed there. We probably listened to that song like 20 times in a row, just well, that's, driving. That's, 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 that's uh, vintage and classic me, my friends and anybody who's been around me for any period of time knows that when I get a song in my brain, I have to listen to it over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, what do you, you what do you associate with Jules is on a vacation, vacation far away? 
what, what do you associate uh, that song with? That is me in college on a Thursday or Friday night when everybody, <laughs> all the partiers in my fraternity house would be going out. And uh, I was never like a go outer type of guy. My my best friend, Paul, who's still my best friend, Paul. Um, he and <laughs> hi, I Paul. Would, hi, Paul. Um, we would, you know, typically stay in or find something, you know, less adventurous to do but that's just an anthem of everybody getting ready to go out and go <laughs> uh, take on manhattan kansas um you know laura you reminded me of a song that is a very i got to do this thing for serious and i never really saw it but they had me pick 10 10 songs um oh. that are important to me and i kind of did it over the course of my of my acting career so it was really mm. hard to narrow them down to 10 yeah. songs. But there is a song that uh, your listeners um, need, need, to, need to listen to. Um, okay. And you'll know it right when you hear it. But it's by Desiree. And it's called You Gotta Be. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. That, that song and is my college year. It's my, la- it's my final year at K-State. Okay, so that song, when I moved to Chicago all alone, didn't know anyone there, mm. drove my Ford Contour from Manhattan, Kansas, Chicago with my parents. <laughs> um, yes, Ford Contour, yes. Yeah. That song I would just play on over and over and over again. And when you listen to the words of that song and put it into perspective of what I was thought I was moving to Chicago to do. Yes. And just... That, that I can listen to that song and have literal tears rolling down my face because yes. of obviously how it all turned out, but how important that song was to me at that time. Hi, friends. I'm Laura Camion. And I'm Susan Blackwell. And we're the hosts of the Sparkfile Creativity Podcast. We are excited to report that we're accepting applications for the Sparkfile Select Group Creativity Coaching Program, a guided six-month creative adventure. This program is like a live, interactive episode of the Sparkfile Podcast, facilitated by the two of us and, of course, the occasional inspiring expert or guest maker. We'll investigate topics that directly impact your creativity and productivity. A select group of participants will design and navigate their own creative roadmaps and support each other to get the work done. Now you might have a specific project you want to tackle, or you might just want a healthy, productive group to engage with in a regular creative practice. At each week's virtual meetup through activities, accountability, and interaction with a community of peers, we'll lay the groundwork for your creativity to thrive. Show up and do the work, and in six months' time, your creative practice will be on point and your creative project will be well on its way. As you know, we believe every single person is innately creative, but smart creative people don't go it alone. If you want to be surrounded by a group of like-minded creatives who are invested in your success, the Sparkfile Select Group Creativity Coaching Program might be just right for you. If this creative mixtape sounds appealing to you, go to thesparkfile.com, click on coaching and apply, but do it soon because spots are limited. I have a question for you, Eric. You yeah. are in this liminal space now. You're you finished this really, really significant long form project, professionally at least. You're in this liminal space. And we've talked to so many makers who have felt, who have experienced 
enormous success. And then they have this pressure considering what to do next after that success. Do you feel any of that stress? Has this pause that the pandemic has inserted into all of our lives alleviated any of that pressure? Um, how, <laughs> how are you feeling? How are you feeling? Yeah, that's um, that's relevant question as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, Modern Family was this, you know, right out of the gates, big giant success. And I yeah. had a, a tenth, you know, less than a tenth of the, the, the load to, to carry in that show. Like, meaning it wasn't the Eric Stone Street show. It was Modern Family. And I was one of, you know, the cast members. And it had the pedigree of a couple great writers. And it had, you know, network and studio support out the wazoo. So that's a huge thing to have your first big break on, mm-hmm. you know, and I've been an actor for 12 or four, 12 or 13 years before that. It's crazy to say my first big break was 12 or 13 years into my career, but that's the truth. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. now that's over. Um, and that was a, not only was it all of what I just said, it was also this creative utopia, meaning that we all got along. We never had yeah. drama. There was never a diva. I was probably the closest to being the diva. You know, or what, 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 whatever, like we all liked each other and everyone carried the same amount of weight on the show and it was never one of our shows. So it just was, and the writers and the writing remained fantastic. So now. That's a pretty amazing magic trick. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's over. And now you think from a business side of things, going back to my business mind, which is. I'm going to go and work with people that I don't know, um, potentially get teamed up with an actor or performer that might throw a temper tantrum and not come out of their trailer on a Tuesday for some reason that isn't known to me. Like, how's that going to work? So there is this amazing amount of anxiety around Mm. what I do next. Um, Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is I've, you know, there's a saying in the business that you can't be a bigger asshole than the number one asshole on the call sheet. And <laughs> on our show, Ed O'Neill was number one on the call sheet. And Ed O'Neill <laughs> is an amazing guy. Yeah. And that sets the tone. So yeah. when, when that person isn't an asshole, no one else can be. Yeah. Um, so now my creative desire and my business sense is to go and be that number one on the call sheet and be able to set my tone of how I want the show done and how I would be a great leader and be a great leader and, you know, talk to people and, um, you know, cultivate, you know, because on modern family, it was interesting how it kind of worked with the cast because Ed has been in the business and famous and rich and blah, blah, blah for so long. He doesn't really get down into the melee of things like meaning, Hey, so-and-so's, you know, being a jerk to so-and-so nobody goes to Ed with those problems. Right. Mm -hmm. And it oddly trickled to me, uh, me being (laughs) five on the call sheet is where some, and because of my, you know, high sense of justice and what, what did you say that happened to so-and-so? Well, that's not right. We we need to do something about that. You know? Well, listen, 
that's that's a very dangerous place to be on a TV show when you're the person that people come to with all those issues. Mm. And um, it's, it's fun, but you also then you can kind of become the squeaky wheel. My point of all this is that I would love to be able to set the tone of a show and just know that, you know, from the top down from the creators and we had great creators on modern family. That's not the point, but just to be able to set that sort of in, in, in stone, stone street, I guess that this is how we're going to, this is how things are going to run. And it's a, it's an easy place to be. And that sounds fun to me. I can't wait to see that happen. Well, but then it also has to be a good show. That's the, that's right. the other element of it. So then you have to, then the fear becomes of like, okay, well, what's, what's going to be, what do I want to do? Do you have something in mind? Like what kind of thing would interest you? Yeah. I mean, before all this happened, I mean, I were, you know, lots of discussions are happening with different people about things. That's why when yeah. you asked me what the creative risk, the entry ticket at the beginning was, I sort of hesitated because uh, mm. there, there is, there is a business risk that is on the horizon to take, but I, mm -hmm. or, you know, a show business risk to sure. take and just don't know when this is all going to kind of be over and we'll get back to work. And then that would be, that would have been my answer mm -hmm. um, potentially yeah. if we were doing this a month from now or two months from now. No, I, I think it's exciting. And also I can imagine that it does feel super risky because magic hap you know you had uh that was an extended mm -hmm. period of magic on so many levels and i can imagine it being feeling risky that it's sort of like huh can we can we make something that is its own thing but it's also like functional and special and well made and kind and professional um but that's a fun, that's a fun challenge, but I can also imagine it would be anxiety provoking. Well, and here, here, here's the other, the other thing is that it's, um, what, like I'm cognizant or I think, and maybe I'm wrong to think about it is like, what, what do other people, what do people want to see me do? Like mm -hmm. I, because I'm, I, I don't want to be like the lady death protest too much. And then all of a sudden be a serial killer on some show. You know what I mean? It's like go from mm -hmm. playing Cameron Tucker to all of a sudden playing some dark, you know, horrible, ruthless character. Uh, right. So I have to find the perfect, the, the balance of what people want to see me do, what people will find interesting and believable that also is creative, creatively stimulating to me. I never mm -hmm. wanted to be that comedian, comedic actor that's like, well, but what I really want to do is drama. Mm -hmm. Even though, like, that's what I had done mostly before Modern Family was procedural drama on, um, you know, on TV CSI. shows. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Eric, remember when you were on American Horror Story? That was so <laughs> fucking scary. God damn it. That was so goddamn stressful. I had to watch that through a couch pillow. Oh, yeah. It's a I love doing that. And, you know, I had a couple opportunities to go back and do a couple episodes of that. And I wanted to. I love Ryan Murphy. I love his world and his. You want to talk about a spark. I mean, that guy's, yeah. that guy's crazy, crazy yeah. creative. 
um, I love his love his brain. Um, but in that in that world, um, and then juxtaposition all of what I've just said with finding the balance of feeling comfortable and I don't want to say the word set because that sounds pretend you know like braggy, but set in life meaning. Yeah. I don't have to like go do something. That's without, right. Yeah. With feeling like not lazy because I don't want to feel, you know, lazy and say like, well, I don't want to do anything, but there is this feeling of like, well, it's got to be good. It's got to be something. And mm -hmm. right in the beginning of Modern Family, you know, when we first started, he goes, listen, you're going to get asked to do stuff in your off season. You're going to get asked to do movies or whatever. He's like, just take my advice. Just if it's not better than this, don't do it. Mm. And, you know, that stuck with me big time because, you know, he's, he turned out to be right. Um, because I, you know, along the way, um, get offered to go do a small movie in Louisiana or a small movie in this or a, a bigger mm -hmm. role in this movie. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to go to Atlanta for three months. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And so you have to find this, um, this thing. What I, that's what I'm, what I was talking about. It's like, I don't want to appear lazy because my right. job is to be an actor and be creative and to go create a role but if it doesn't like just Amen. Move me immediately, Amen. what am I going to do it for? But the other thing is, I don't think I, I see all the things that you're doing in the world, uh, entrepreneurial things, philanthropic things. And I would not call you a lazy person, mm -mm. even though you're not doing some movie that you're not, your heart isn't interested in. But I am curious, like with those things that you are choosing to do, I know that there's a disruption because of the pandemic, but that aside, what caught, how do you decide what those things are that you're going to, that you are going to select to devote your time and energy to? Okay. So this is really funny. Uh, it's so uh, elementary, rudimentary, whatever, it is, but it's a thousand percent true, and it's my technique. Uh, it's so dumb. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a patented Stone Street technique. <laughs> no, it's so dumb. And my manager over the years has has gotten to to, to know that it's that it's the way it goes. We go back <laughs> to what I said earlier, which is my lack of desire to to be in education in any way. Well, one of the aspects of going to school is reading, right? And you always hear these stories of like, oh, if I could just get the actor to read the material, if we could just mm -hmm. get him to read the material. That is a yeah. thousand percent true. That's 100% mm -hmm. true that that is mm -hmm. a huge hurdle for any creative person to get someone to read the material. Yeah. So it's very simple. My manager knows when they send a script over that if I get to page six, I'm interested in my emails. My email is response is your indicator um, for, for me, for me. If I respond quickly, then I'm interested. Yeah. And, and I yes. just have to trust that. I have to know that, that something threw me off and I didn't respond or yeah. I didn't get 
to it. Sometimes I'll skip to yeah. the end and read read the end and and see something. I read something and I I visually imagine me doing the doing it. And if I can't see myself doing it, there was this project a couple years ago that somebody really wanted me to do, and I I was interested in the material. I liked the material, but when I would lay in bed at night, which is where I do most of my thinking, and I would mentally imagine myself in that part, I never could get around me saying the words of that character. I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. So that's one way. And then, um, you know, my dad always taught me, and this is, again, it's going to sound so backwards, but it's so true. When you don't have to think about it anymore is when you know you've made your decision. Yeah. And the best the best example I can give you is so, again, so dumb, but it's just my life. <laughs> I always thought I wanted at my old house that Laura had spent to, you know, that mm-hmm. I lived in in Valley Village there. I always thought I wanted a hot tub. <laughs> I always thought. <laughs> I always thought I'm, I'm going to get a hot tub. And I'd go to Costco and I'd look at hot tubs. I had the electrician come over and tell me uh-huh. what I needed to do to get the right power over there. And I'd look online. I'd go to the hot tub store and I'd sit in a hot tub and I'd think about it. Yeah. And I never got a hot tub. <laughs> and that is the classic example of my dad's advice is when you wake up and you're not thinking about it anymore. You know you've made your decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're done. Or if and, you've pulled the trigger. Like if you would have, yeah. if you would, you, if you really, really, really wanted the hot tub, you would have had the hot tub installed. Exactly. It would yep. have happened. But I was still hemming and hawing and hedging and yeah. thinking and this. Yep. And that's how it is with when I find myself reading something or I've read something and, I, and I'm still thinking about it. You, and that really goes to your gut. Yeah. It goes to trusting yeah. your gut. You it know is when intuition. You know. It's when it clicks into place and when it's sort of just like that puzzle piece just goes click. And it's there's an ease about it where it just sort of all makes sense and comes together. Yeah. yeah. It's also not like overthinking it. It's It's literally like letting your thoughts naturally come and go. And if it's a part of them, that tells you something as opposed to like, I need to sit down and I need to think about this. I like the idea of the hot tub metric. I think that's <laughs> useful mm-hmm. takeaway from mm-hmm. this. I think if yeah, we've learned, well, if we've mean, learned nothing else. You just, you just, you just know, I mean, I've always found in, you know, Marshall Bell, a great mentor to me. Um, he's a character actor that I've met on a campaign of commercials I did years ago and we've just stayed friends and he's a great, great guy, great character actor. And right before I got Modern Family, I was sort of in one of my, you know, sort of valleys that actors get into where it's like, what is this all for? Am I ever going (laughs) to the success that I think I'm capable of or whatever it is? He, he, he kind of talked me out of it and he's like, well, can you tie? He's got this real thick Oklahoma accent and he goes, can you talk, can you type? And I said, well, not really. He goes, well, what in the hell else are you going to do then? <laughs> That's it. It's this or typing. And I said, well, 
Yeah, he goes, you're on the carousel, man. You're on the carousel. Your turn's going to come, man. You're in too deep. And, you know, he kind of talked me through that. (laughs) You're in too deep. You're in too deep. I mean, it's (laughs) it's true. And he always would tell me, and I don't think he invented it, but I love it. And everybody I always tell, it seems like it's the first time they've heard it. But Hollywood and our business is the slowest no and the fastest yes. Mm. And Could you say what that means? Well, it means, you know, and it took me forever to figure out what the slowest no and the fastest yes yeah. meant. But I found that I was, a, you know, sort of, playing in that pool for years and years and years. So it's on a, a Monday you go in and you audition for CSI. And on Thursday, you're wondering if you got the part. And on Friday, you're thinking, well, maybe I'll hear today. And then over the weekend, mm. you're like, well, I never heard anything. I wonder if I got it or not. And it's like, well, that's the slow no. Mm. And it takes you getting the fast yes to understand what the slow mm-hmm. no and the fast yes got is. It. Got when it. Got it's it. Got yes, it. It's a yes. Boom. When it's a yes, yeah. it's a yes, typically. That's when it's a yes, they call you when you're on the sidewalk outside of the audition. 100%. And that's, yeah. not, that, that's not always the case. But, but a lot of times. It's a lot of times. Yeah. And it took me thinking of all the slow no's I put myself through, my family through, and thinking of like, well, have you heard anything? No, not yet. No, not yet. Meanwhile, they've probably shot the job. yeah it was a it was a joke that i would have with my friend paul my best friend paul who's still my best friend paul hi paul hi paul i love that i would i would always do when we'd go to a movie in a part that i had auditioned for in a movie and i would lean over to him and say well i guess i didn't get this part Fucking a! I guess this is how I'm gonna find out. Yeah, didn't I guess get it this is how i find out i didn't i've get stopped it. saying to my husband now i've just i've stopped saying i auditioned for that Audition for that. I'm like, why even take the breath to expel the words? Audition for that. Yeah. Yeah. But but the flip side of that is what I was saying about how you asked me earlier, just a second ago, of like how I say yes to things. So I use the fastest no, uh, or the slowest no and the fastest yes as my technique. I know when I know. Like Uh I apply that principle to when I'm reading a script and in actively motivated. And that just happened. It happened a couple weeks ago when I got a script sent to me. And I read the premise, I read the first lines, and I called my manager immediately and I said, yes, I want to move forward. I want to move forward with this. This is exciting. Yes. You know what I'm trying to get better at, Eric, actually, is the yes to the fast yes and yes to the fast no. I'm trying to get better at being like when when something comes through, some ask, some offer, just I know in my body, like what you're talking about, I know in my body when I'm like, no, Neep. hard pass. And I'm trying to get better at just taking, like just taking the breath and sending the email or making the phone call. That's just like, thank you so much, but so no, thank you more yeah. quickly. I think I've, I think I need to get better at that. The, the fast yes and the fast no. Well, you know, there's a lot of, uh, uh, surrender a lot of a lot of power in that fast no Mm -hmm. you know and once you once you can type out the word pass or no thank you (laughs) yeah uh, and you get used to doing it quickly there really becomes a, a lot of great comfort in that 
So mm -hmm. uh, practice it, and then you won't have any problem with it. Gentle pass. Thank you. It doesn't even have to be gentle. Because here's, here's the other thing in that, that I, I learned really early on, is your career is defined by what you say no to, not by what you say yes to. So a lot of times people, a lot of times people, when you say no, they're just like profoundly intoxicated by that. Like, I'm sorry, what? No. Well, hold on. What if we paid you more? It's still mm -hmm. a no. Well, but wait a minute. Well, what if we, what if this is like, no, it's just still, it's still a no. Like there's no, there's no, there's power in no. And there's yes. respect in no. Yeah. And that's what For Ed sure. was telling me. Ed was teaching me that very early on. Yeah. He's like, say no more than you say yes, because that is what your career and what your life is defined by what you say no to. Thanks, Ed. Yeah. Well, and here's, here's, you just got me going now because now you just made me think of something that's a full circus full moment before I ever knew I wanted to be, you know, was going to audition for the circus in high school. My high school counselor, uh, Al Ogden, who passed away last year, he was this great guy. He was just always just so much sage wisdom and really a big reason why I moved to Chicago because he was the dean of students at Oak Park River Forest High School in Oak Park, Illinois. And he took me up there when I was in high school on a tour and I just fell in love with the city of Chicago. But anyway, he told me, he said, Eric, always remember in life that they'll ask the ringmaster in a circus to scoop up the elephant poop. Now this was before I ever auditioned for Ringling Brothers. And I was like, what do you mean, Mr. Ogden? He goes, they'll ask the ringmaster to scoop up the elephant poop, but it's up to the ringmaster to say, no, I'm the ringmaster. I don't uh. scoop up the elephant poop. And what the lesson there is people will always ask you things. They'll always, and I, and I applied that right in my career when I moved to LA because you can be a Juilliard trained top-notch actor and have the best resume, the best, whatever you can. And they'll still ask you to do a line on one line on Dharma and Greg. Because mm. <laughs> why wouldn't they want the best actor mm -hmm, to course. do that one mm -hmm, line of course. in Dharma and Greg? So that's where you start to learn. You have to start defining who you are to people. And that's why I would tell people you can't do background work. You can't do these one line parts forever. You can't do co-stars. You have to keep moving yourself up the chain because of course they're going to keep asking you to do these, these one-off right. parts because you're so talented and you're so good that they want, to, they want to knock that one line out of the park just as much as they want to do anything else. So you have to start saying no. And it was when I was in L.A., I remembered, it's like, this is what Mr. Ogden was talking about. <laughs> of course. I want to ask you, is there something creative you know you need to do before you're done? You know, I, I, th I think I have a pretty strong desire. Um, to again, my acting training is, is what it is and limited. So my goals always were to, you know, create characters or create moments, whatever they were that one line on that one show or three lines on whatever show is to have people say, Oh, that, that guy was good or mm -hmm. that was funny or whatever. That's, that was my, that was my goal. So I would say that I probably have a desire to 
if someone's listening that thinks I was successful with the character of Cameron on Modern Family, I would I would probably say I have the desire in my brain and in my heart to make them feel something completely opposite of Cameron and feel as successful mm-hmm. at doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that goes to, you know, because I say I don't want to be that comedic actor that's like, oh, no, but now I want to do drama. Mm-hmm. But I played a character for 11 years that's not my personality. Like, that's I mean, right. you know, it's, 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 there's aspects of my personality that, mm-hmm. are, that are there clearly, or I wouldn't have been good at it, I guess. But I haven't had the ability to um, make an audience aware of a character that's closer to me my real personality. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be surprising. Mm, I think that would be, I mean, I know I have a really good sense of what you're capable of and I'm sure it's even beyond what I know at this point, but I look forward to that. I think people will be blown away by the scope of work that you're able to do. You're very nice to say that. Can't wait to see what that is. I know. Setting. Uh, I have a friend that always would say, before I was ever on the show, that she would always say, like, somebody's going to pay you a million dollars to let the rage that just sits right under the thin skin <laughs> of, of your personality out. So when somebody right, gives you the opportunity to let that loose. You better <laughs> so, go for it. I always thought like, well, that's how I would ever make it, you know, is like, that's how you get your Oscar baby. (laughs) Yeah. Eric, you have done, you've done so much. I feel like in so many different areas with your, your work on modern family, the, all the work that preceded that, the Royals, the, the, the philanthropy, what's it all for? Well, You mean the the philanthropy portion of what's it all for? Just all, which... all the hard work that you do, all of the hard work that you do. Is there a sense of unifying purpose behind it? <laughs> well, I say this every year when I come home to Kansas City to do the big slick. And I just saw somebody say it way better than I'm able to say it. And I meant to write it down, but because I'm a horrible <laughs> student. But here we are. But here we are. Doing good things for the community is the most gratifying selfish feeling thing mm, yeah uh, you can do it makes it feels like i'm the one that is on the receiving end of that because it 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 makes me feel so good and it doesn't necessarily feel right and that's why you know my message to kids that send me direct messages on Instagram and I've been trying to send replies to people as much as I can um, when they're feeling despair or lonely or whatever. It's like the best thing you can do is go do something for someone else. It will make, it will fill you up with so much joy to go out and just do one tiny little act for someone. So, you know, I guess I'm trying to fill something up inside me. Uh, just like everyone else is, you know, you go buy a big TV and you hope that that's going to make you feel great or you go 
you know, eat a cake or whatever it is that people do to try to find that yeah. good feeling they're looking for. Yeah. 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 Um, I think I'm on the same, same quest and I try to funnel and challenge, channel it through doing good stuff for people in, in organized ways, meaning with the big slick here in Kansas city and children's mercy hospital, but also, um, through my private and secretive, I don't want to say secretive, but sort of (laughs) non-publicized ways of helping people and doing Mm -hmm. things for them. It makes me feel good. And then that's, it's, it's as, it's as simple as that. It makes me feel good and it also helps other people. So that's the answer there. That's a great one. Why goes back to my, my parents and my dad specifically, you know, he, I watched him do nice, good things for people my whole life and would see it um, all the time. You know, so the other answer there is to try to live up to the example. Um, I watched my dad set for me is the reason that I like doing good things. One of the coolest things, one of the coolest things I ever saw, uh, tell you this i don't think i've ever told this story before one of the coolest things i ever saw my dad do for someone was he knew a friend of his was having a hard time um i get emotional thinking about this um he installed garage doors was his job and he had a i I don't know a rough time wasn't didn't have a business or whatever Mm mm-hmm and rather than my dad saying, hey, here's X amount of dollars for your business, mm-hmm. he had him come out and install two new garage doors in his, my dad's barn. And he said, okay, I'll be back. I'll, get, I'll go get you, write you a check. And um, comes back up with the check already you know, filled out and hands it to him. And the guy, I watched it happen. The guy looks at it and he goes, well, the garage doors, it's not how much the, this is not how much oh. these garage doors cost. This is way too much, Vince. And he said, well, that's what I want to pay for the garage doors. And I just thought that was, I just thought that was so cool. That was just like such a cool move because it was just like, it was respectful. Yeah. It was helpful. It wasn't like charity. It was like, no, don't you like, this is what I'm valuing your work at. That's right. That's right. You worked here today. This is what I'm going to pay you. And I just, I've never forgotten that. Uh, before I have to pull out the Kleenex, Eric, can you tell us what or who is sparking you these days? Any any interesting, you know, books or quotes or songs or, you know, what, what song do you have um, on repeat these days? Oh, my gosh. Oh, let me look. I just was playing this song on the way home. Um <laughs> It's, it's by this guy and it's, you know, also I'm very much in, in the music environmentally where I'm at, like meaning the back, the backdrop of where I'm mm-hmm. at is important to me. So it's oh, this yeah. guy uh, that I just was listening to named uh, Larry Fleet and the song is called Working Hard. And I've just been listening to that over and over and over again. <laughs> That's going to be the song that helps you remember this time. Yeah. When you hear that song, you're going to be like, yeah, Larry oh, Fleet. Yeah. We do not have the rights to use this music, no. Larry Fleet. <laughs> I know he's man, I, but I know, 
I know, I know his manager, so you're good. Eric, thank you so much. You're just such a joy and it's such a pleasure. And I'm so happy to catch up with you in these strange times in this strange way. We're so happy to have this time with you, especially it's all, it feels so much more poignant because the times are so weird, but Mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you for making time for this. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on and congratulations on your, your podcast and what you guys are doing. It's exciting. It's good that you uh, took the proverbial bull by the horns and created your own thing and it's only way to do it. Yeah. Only way to do it, Eric. Um, I guess that's it. We hope this put another bunch of sparks in your file. Listen to us. If there is a spark you'd like us to explore, or if you've taken a spark and fanned it into a creative flame and you'd like to share that, we hope you'll email us at thesparkfile at gmail.com or submit it through our website, thesparkfile.com. We will even happily take your feedback, but you know the price of admission. First, you've got to share a creative risk that you've taken recently. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, five-star, review it. If you like this podcast, share it with people you love. And if you didn't like it, I don't know, Eric, what do you say to your critics? Uh, uh, I, oh, can you, you, you just like fuck off, I guess? Is <laughs> yes. <laughs> Classic that never goes out of style. Yes. Well, it's, yes, yes. you know, it's so easy to be a critic. Oh, Yeah. Too easy. And and everyone has a platform. That's the truth. That's the truth. But they've got to fuck straight off. (laughs) Something tickles your fancy and gets your creative juices flowing. We are writing you a forever permission slip to make that thing that's been knocking at your door. It's your turn to take a spark and fan it into a flame. Mm. You got to take it and And make make it. Bye. Bye. When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my spark files. Could be something that I want to make or how I want to be. I pump it in my spark files. I jump into my spark files. Let's open up the spark files. Hi friends, I'm Laura Camion and I'm Susan Blackwell and we're the hosts of the Sparkfile Creativity Podcast. We are excited to report that we're accepting applications for the Sparkfile Select Group Creativity Coaching Program, a guided six-month creative adventure. This program is like a live interactive episode of the Sparkfile Podcast, facilitated by the two of us and of course the occasional inspiring expert or guest maker. We'll investigate topics that directly impact your creativity and productivity. A select group of participants will design and navigate their own creative roadmaps and support each other to get the work done. Now you might have a specific project you want to tackle or you might just want a healthy productive group to engage with in a regular creative practice. At each week's virtual meetup through activities, accountability, and interaction with a community of peers, we'll lay the groundwork for your creativity to thrive. Show up and do the work and in six months time, your creative practice will be on point and your creative project will be well on its way. As you know, we believe every single person is innately creative, but smart creative people don't go it alone. If you want to be surrounded by a group of like-minded creatives who are invested in your success, 
the Sparkwell Select Group Creativity Coaching Program might be just right for you. If this creative mixtape sounds appealing to you, go to thesparkfile.com, click on coaching and apply, but do it soon because spots are limited. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be part of the Sparkfile coaching community? Here's how the Sparkfile community describes it. The most honest, safe, life-affirming, and life-changing experience I've had in all my 55 years. The best. I'm incredibly grateful to Laura and Susan for teaching me the tools and structures that I need to get past the fear and to just do it anyway. The Sparkfile is a portal to your creative powers and believing in yourself. This group is spiritually, emotionally, mentally supportive, creative, amazing, encouraging, life-shifting, and liberating uber talented warm thoughtful lovely wonderful people i need a group like this to give me the kick in the ass that i need to start making the things that i want to make and do there's a big beautiful creative trampoline that just like catches you gently and just launches you out with so much love if you want to learn more about the spark file creativity coaching including our six-month blaze course visit the sparkfile.com slash blaze and schedule a no pressure no obligation call to find out what is possible and how we can support you it's time to take it and make it.